Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1969 John Wayne film, True Grit. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks, Sam. Uh, Barrett, this is going to be interesting because this is the first time that I've known what the next movie is. Um, and I'm I, as I was framing my questions, I'm trying as best as I can to not talk about this in comparison to the Coen Brothers movie, which I've seen, because that's what next week is going to be a lot more about, I think, is talking about these two films in conversation. So I'm going to try to not do that, but there's probably going to be moments where that will will seep in. So maybe to start with, what is your history with this film specifically? Yeah, this film specifically, um, I was, uh, you know, I'm going to, those questions often date me, uh, Sam. So I was uh, 10 years old nearly 11 when this film came out and to be frank what mostly interested me about this film was glenn campbell um at the time i was a glenn campbell fan uh he had his show on t- tv i loved his his music so i wanted to see the film mostly because it was glenn campbell um i don't know if that's how i persuaded my father to take me or whether he was interested in john wayne my dad's politics were probably closer to, to john wayne's than mine um so anyway so that, that was my history and uh and and uh and i just loved and i remember at the time just loving kim darby i just thought she was she was wonderful um so actually let's talk about john wayne um mm. I, now i have to admit i have seen very 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 little john wayne i mean he is a Uh, a cultural figure in the way that like you can be very aware of Marilyn Monroe and kind of understand everything about her and never see a film that she's been in. Mm. Um, I kind of am that way with John Wayne. I, I I don't know that this is true, but there, this might be the the only John Wayne movie I've seen in its entirety. Mm. I don't, I I don't know. So I'm curious what, uh, what John Wayne meant uh, in 1969. I mean, because this is, this is towards the end of his career. I think he's, he dies at the end of the seventies, right? 79, 77. 77. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so, you know, there he, ha- this is about eight years before, uh, before he dies. It's not his last movie, but, um, but this is kind of a pinnacle movie for him in terms of uh, he wins, he wins an Oscar for this movie. Um, but it's also definitely a late career movie for him. So I'm curious what John Wayne meant in 1969. Um, and then, yeah, so maybe we'll start, we'll start there. Yeah, well, you know, first of all, as you, as you said, uh, Sam, he was he was as much a cultural figure as he was a an actor. Um, I mean, it's he kind of for a lot of people, Wayne kind of represented a certain kind of rugged uh, Americanism. So, for example, when Emperor Hirohito visited the United States, he wanted to meet John Wayne. Uh, and when Nikita Khrushchev came to the United States, he wanted to meet John Wayne. I mean, these so Wayne and, and Wayne himself thought of himself as a kind of um, ultra patriot. As I alluded to earlier, his politics were very conservative. Um, uh, although he wasn't, although he was capable of seeing the other side of issues. But you know, the year before this, he had produced and co-directed the Green Berets which was the first film uh, made about the Vietnam War while the war was going on. He was a supporter of the war. It was one of his great lifetime regrets that he could not get himself accepted in military service in World War II, although he kept trying, uh, but he never was actually able to, to serve. And that kind of aided him. And a lot of people say that kind of led to his his kind of ultra-patriotism over the years. Big supporter of HUAC, you know, the anti-communist movement. But at the same time, he 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 makes True Grit, which is a screenplay by a, a writer who had been blackballed by by Huac. So he was a little more complex than people often make him out to be. Personally, for me, in '69, I certainly knew who Duke was. Um, 
And my first contact with John Wayne was uh, when I was at summer camp. And it probably would have been about the same time. I think I would have been nine or ten. Uh, they decided, the, the organizers of the camp decided that a good film for us to watch would be The Searchers. So we watched um, the John Ford 1956 The Searchers, which is probably Wayne's greatest performance, uh, for which he was not even nominated. Um, he was only nominated twice in his career. Uh, True Grit was only his second nomination. Um, but The Searchers is not a movie for 10-year-old boys by any stretch of the imagination. But that's how I first kind of saw, saw Wayne. Uh, and since then, you know, I, I really, um, if you haven't seen Stagecoach, uh, despite its prob problematic depiction of Native Americans, uh, for Wayne's entrance alone, that film is, is worth uh, the money. It's interesting because as I think about John Wayne, because I'm not as aware of him as a, um, you know, seeing him on screen, uh, he... <laughs> I have uh, I, I associate him like when I have memories of my grandfather who passed away in 1995, and like I only saw kind of intermittently. I picture John Wayne, <laughs> like mm -hmm. like like that's the when I see John Wayne, I think of like those two people kind of melt together, like mm -hmm. which is a it, and I, I'm not even saying that they're similar people in any way, but like that's just kind of yeah. somehow that those 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 images uh, melt together, and uh, my grandfather is a <laughs> interesting problematic person in my life's history and it's interesting to like so so like i i feel like i have baggage going both ways as i'm thinking about as i'm thinking about uh thinking about john wayne um were you somebody who was a uh a, a fan of westerns interested in westerns and i asked that because i was wondering like this is our 80th movie and I was thinking, I feel like we've talked about Westerns a little bit at some point, but when I went back on Letterboxd and searched by genre of movies we've watched, only two popped up. And it was it was First Cow and Treasure of the Sierra Madre, which I think I, I, I looked at both of those and I said, I guess they're Westerns, but they're not what I think of as like, this feels more like what I think of when I think of a Western. So I'm sort of curious, like, what is the the meaning of the Western? Because it is definitely a significant genre in American history. And it's one that had that sort of fades away and then and then resurges and fades away and resurges. Yeah, it's and, and some people think the Western is sort of even a quintessential American movie. Uh, and the, the 1950s was certainly probably the high point for the Western films like High Noon, and I don't want to mention The Searchers, Shane, um, Rio, Rio Lobo, or Rio Bravo. Um, and I think some people would see the Western as a quintessential American film because it is it is the story of American expansion into the West. And so, and what's interesting about that as the American story is it has both sides of the American story, right? You've got this notion of manifest destiny and America kind of taking, taking this land and, and quote, taming it. But then you've got the, the darker side of it, which is the people from whom the land was taken away uh, and what it means for Native Americans or, 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 or Indians to be part of that, part of that story. So as a consequence, one of the tensions you often get in the Western, which I think you see in True Grit, is you get a tension between this notion of a civilized order based on the rule of law and a kind of what, you know, what we call frontier justice, you know, based on individual kind of initiative. In fact, my favorite, one of my favorite lines in any Western is at the end of Stagecoach, when John Wayne and um, Claire Trevor uh, leave the U.S. for for Mexico for various reasons, and as they arrive off, another character says, "Saved from the blessings of civilization," 
and 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 that and that in itself to me captures beautifully the tension of the western the western is about civilizing but it's also about wanting not to be not to be civilized and so i think there's there's kind of deep contradictions in the western which i think are deeply in the american character as, as well um just just the presence the hyper presence of guns i mean i, I love i love uh, being a true grit when maddie advises her father you know to buy a new a new and better gun when he gets to fort smith um it's like what advice what advice from a 14 year old right and, and and this movie lives on um exists on that line because there is this sense of like uh, okay, when you go into Indian territory, and I'm just going to use that phrase because yeah. that's that's how they talk about it in the movie. When you go into Indian territory, it's like the law is different there because that that it, so this exists on that frontier line um, mm-hmm. because that's where uh, that's where where Cheney escapes to, right? And then you also at the same time have um, one of my favorite uh, characters in this in this uh story which is somebody who doesn't appear till the very end which is lawyer daggett the number of times because he's always i mean maddie is always speaking in terms of law right it's like well i have a lawyer i am from here there is law there is rights there is justice there are these things and daggett is this this name that gets evoked constantly in this movie and and there is this sense that like okay well is he does he represent the law or do these like marshals and texas rangers who are uh a little more lawless but existing within the law are they the law or or or, you know so i think that that tension is is uh sort of beautifully played out in this story and that's very important that's a really good point because it's very important to maddie that cheney be brought back to face justice so even though the the film has the element of the western vengeance plot which is a classic plot at the same time she wants it to be according to the to the rule of law and of course that's how the film one of the things the film begins with right is the hanging of the three men uh because that's seen as as a part of a judicial process it's not a lynch mob it's i mean it's it's interesting right how we define these things it's not a lynch mob because if the state does it it's a it's a justifiable death well, and it is also interesting to think about the 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 setting of this uh, this story in this film. And I'm being very careful to think about story versus film because one of the things that we're going to be talking about when we talk about a remake is that they share the same story elements, right? The same characters, same story, same often the same setting, the same you know. So it's about how does the how does the film? It's actually a great way maybe to talk about film because it's like how do how does this filmmaker and crew. Uh, how do they go about telling this story versus how does another group tell this story? Um, but it's interesting that this this uh, story, this film is set in 1880, mm-hmm. um, which is still in you know what we might call in quotes the Wild West, mm-hmm. but it's not far away. Um, I'm going to credit uh, one of my uh, my mentors when I was a student here at Bethel, uh, Diana Magnuson, always taught us about the importance of the census. In the 1890 census is when we get the closing of the frontier. Um, when, 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 when that sort of declaration is made and then in, in 1893, you get, uh, the historian Frederick Jackson Turner talking about the frontier thesis, which is a, you know, a contested idea in American, uh, in, in sort of American historiography, but it's this idea kind of that some of the things you were talking about, how like there's this view that maybe America is forged on the frontier, mm-hmm. right? This, this expanse of quote unquote, open land, available land violence and it's always pushing up against that frontier and then it, by 1890 what the closing of the frontier means is that there is no longer this uh we, sort of the 
maybe the uh, the dream of Manifest Destiny has been achieved, where you know the the C to C expansion of the West uh, expansion westward, and you get the closing of that. So this is this is even set right on the um, right on the cusp of that, kind of in the waning the waning years of the American frontier, which is another reason for the popularity of the Western. I mean, it's interesting that you talk about the closing of the frontier and the, and the beginning of the Western is really the late 1890s in film. And, and so it, it is part of a kind of um, part of a kind of American nostalgia, as well as I said earlier, kind of an American mythology. Uh, and so in a sense, the frontier needs to be closed in order the frontier stories can start to be told. I mean, one of, one of the interesting connections between John Wayne and the American and the frontier is John Wayne knew Wyatt Earp. Uh, in, in Wyatt Earp's final years, he lived uh, in California where Wayne went to college and then started working on the film studios. Wyatt Earp was a friend of Tom Mix, uh, the great silent cowboy uh, actor. Uh, and, and, and Wayne knew him and uh, actually modeled some of his uh, mannerisms on him. Um, one, of the, one of the best things I read about this movie, um, and maybe, did, maybe you came across this, did you read the, uh, the Scott Tobias piece on this uh from the guardian no i didn't so he's talking about 1969 as this like inflection point for american westerns because mm-hmm. he says there's lots of westerns that come out this year but he points to three mm-hmm. and i will say i've only seen two of these three but i'm well aware of the third so he says they kind of represent the past present and future of of the american western films so representing the past you have true grit right, right. Um, representing the present is Butch Cassidy and the Sundance mm-hmm. Kid, and then representing the future is the Wild Bunch. Wild Bunch. That that you get all of these at this one moment, and it's it is, which makes me think like, like this is a fascinating year. I wanna I wanna like dig into a little more to think about, because um, I'm always interested in moments where where even the like here the idea of the Western is being contested on screen by different films, and there's there's other westerns from '69 you could pull into that as well. Um, but I thought that was a really interesting, uh, interesting thing to think about. Like, how does this position itself in relationship to other westerns? Um, so, I mean, do you have thoughts on that in terms of like, like what this is saying, um, maybe about the western? Yeah, I, actually, I, that's a really wonderful kind of um, taxonomy because I, I was also aware of those other two films, and like you, I've seen Butch Cassidy. I've never seen The Wild Bunch. Um, uh, I, that's that's actually a really interesting perspective because I think that you could you could argue that in some ways um, that has continued to be the case. I, mean, I think there's still people still trying to make the true grit sort of western, like the remake, the recent remake of the Free Ten to Yuma, for example. I mean, that's that's still kind of an old classic western, and then you get these kind of what you might call um, the, a revisionist western, um, which I would say something like. Uh, um, Jim Jarmus is a dead man. That's kind of a, a, a revisionist Western. And then what the Coen brothers are doing, as I said, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but I mean, what the Coen brothers are doing is really a kind of melding of the two because their true grit is not the 1969 true grit. Um, it's not necessarily the wild bunch, but it's tending a bit in that, in that direction. So I think maybe what you get, we should mention maybe a film like Unforgotten as well. I think, you know, what you get are these sort of, um, it's the best way to think about this. Self-aware Westerns, how about that? Westerns that are aware that they're made in the genre of the Western in a way that I think the 1950s and 60s Westerns are not. So it's almost, um, it's almost like a wink to the audience. Like we know this is an old genre. We know this has lots of baggage and we know there are certain tropes that you're going to expect and there are certain tropes that maybe we don't want to fall into. Um, 
and I think that just kind of layers it even more. So this is clearly a film that uh, that John Wayne or a story John Wayne was really interested in. He actually tried to um, tried to option this movie himself. So he uh, he put in a bit of. Three hundred thousand dollars in nineteen sixty-eight when he read the the uh, Charles Portis novel, which I presume is a big chunk of money in nineteen sixty-eight. It's a big chunk of money now, and uh, and actually, um, uh, Wallace, the producer, outbid him for it and then hired him to to yeah. to, to play the part. So why was Wayne drawn to this? And and here's where I where I'm 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 really asking this question because I don't know how much is the character of Rooster Cogburn in this film. Uh, consistent with Wayne, how much is it a departure from from sort of the the John Wayne um, iconography? Yeah, that's a really good. That, those are both good questions, uh, Sam. I, I think I think he's interested in Mr. Cogburn because he could see that this guy was a bigger than life character, and he would just be really fun to play. Even though it's a little bit of a footnote, he struggled a lot with the eye patch. Um, they had to come up with an eye patch, as you probably know, that it was gauzy enough so he could see through it. Because I hadn't thought about that. Try doing things with one eye closed, and it's really hard to shoot a rifle, ride a horse, all that kind of stuff. Um, but I mean, yeah. So he he recognized a really good character when he saw one, and that to me is, is is a testament to his aesthetic. Because despite his political differences from the screenwriter, he recognized that this was going to be a real. This was a really good screenplay. Um, at the same time. A lot of people fault his performance um, as a as, as overacting uh, and not really in some way. It's almost like it's John Wayne doing John Wayne. Now, a, a lot of his mannerisms in the film derive from a great actor, the silent and early talkie area, Wallace Beery. Uh, and in fact, uh, uh, at the end of The Searchers, uh, he does a very characteristic Wallace Beery action where he takes his his left arm and crosses it over and, and grabs it with his right arm. Um, so even his manner of speaking in True Grit owes a little bit to Wallace Beery. Uh, and that was intended on his part as a kind of homage. Um, some people who didn't like it saw it as kind of mannered. As I said, I saw this kind of John Wayne knowing what it means to be John Wayne, uh, doing John Wayne. Uh, but then there's a moment, people also contrast most of his performance with that very quiet scene where he and Maddie talk about his past life. Uh, and, and Wayne himself said that was the best scene he ever played. Uh, and a lot of people feel like that's the point in the movie where he kind of drops the Rooster Cogburn kind of uh, impersonation and, and really is more like John Wayne. But I think it's very, I, I, I think it's kind of John Wayne on steroids is one way to think about it. And, and especially the scene when he's on the horse riding at, uh, at uh, Lucky Ned, uh, the, way he, the way he holds and twirls that rifle, it takes me right back to his entrance as the Cisco kid in Stagecoach. Um, so I don't know, I, I, it's very layered to me, it's very layered. Well, and I think it is interesting the um, the 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 scene you're talking about that 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 he loved so much, uh, where where he drops the rooster Cogburn. It's also potentially like that's Rooster dropping the rooster, right? Because Rooster's playing a character. Um, I, I I think this is overstated, but I was reading um, I can't remember which which reviewer I was reading and talking about like compare. No, again, it's an over comparison, but comparing <laughs> Rooster to to Harry Lyme in terms of like he's this character you hear mm. about, you hear about, and then he appears. Now, I think that's an overstatement, but there is this sense that you hear enough about him to think like even in his time, he's kind of a legend. He's yeah. a legend for for a particular kind of thing. I mean, I think one of the great 
scenes in this movie um and it's and it's because it's a great it's it's a great yeah it's a great piece of dialogue in this movie it's a great scene in the book is when and i think a pivotal scene in the book is when maddie is talking to the sheriff and asking about okay so who are the marshals that i can go to and he gives a rundown of the three marshals um, and, and, uh, the first one he talks about is the best tracker and the other, and then he talks about rooster, uh, kind of like, okay, he's sort of a wild man and he doesn't really bring him back alive, but he's, he gets the job done. And then he, and then he talks about the third one and he's like, this person cares about justice and thinks everybody deserves his day in court. And, you know, and he's like, he is definitely the best one. And then Maddie says, where can I find this rooster? So it's like, there is this sense of like, he, he, he is a legend, you know, and, and, and he has to play that legend that, throughout the story in the same way Wayne has to play Wayne. And then there is this moment where that cracks and we see Wayne gives up the rooster yeah. for a little bit and rooster gives up the rooster. For a so I think that actually, that scene actually works really nicely in there. Well, yeah, yeah. I think, I think one thing that, that Wayne should be credited for is that he does not shy away from playing morally ambiguous heroes. It's, you know, a, a, sometimes people sometimes think the Wayne hero is just like this rugged all American guy, but he, he's actually pretty flawed. Um, you know, his, his racism in the searchers, for example, his drunkenness in, uh, in this film. And, and Wayne pointed out that early in his career, when he was, uh, when he was the good guy in a fight, he actually would do things that good guys were not at that time allowed to do. He would fight dirty. He would pick up a chair and throw it at the guy or, you know, engage in the kind of tactics that supposedly only the bad guys engaged in. So I think that's, I think that's another thing that interests him about Rooster is that Rooster is, is, is complex. Um, and he's got his, he's got his obvious flaws. Uh, have you have you read the uh, the Charles Portis novel? No, I have not. Okay. I, I read it this weekend in preparation for this. And I have to say, uh, it's, it, it's actually interesting because now, cause I watched this movie and it, it was sort of my way of like, okay, how do I forget about the Cohen movie? Well, I'm going to read the, the source text. I love this novel. This mm. is great. I, I actually gave it to my daughter and said, I think you should read this. I think cause she's going to watch, um, she's going to watch true grit with me. So I was like, you should, you should read this. Um, and then she's going to watch the, the Cohen's one. And if she's interested, come go back and watch this one. Um, but yeah, so, so I, I was interested to, to sort of compare, this to look at this movie as an adaptation of the Portis book, and there's definitely some differences that, uh, and I, so so I can talk about a few of these. Um, so so one of them is that the book is told in flashback from Maddie's point of view. So mm-hmm. now I will say a lot of this movie feels like it's Maddie's point of view, but we also move out of that a little more, where yeah. you don't get that sort of. Uh, really interpretive voice because it's not it's it is Maddie older Maddie looking back on this story, um and that changes that changes some of the pieces here. I also actually think that this the movie focuses because it can show and not tell. I think it focuses on Rooster's drinking a little more mm-hmm. than I think the book uh, the book does. And then the big the big difference, and I I want to come back to this because I want to talk about the ending of this movie. Uh, mm-hmm. There's some some real differences. Uh, not maybe there there's some some actual narrative differences, but there's also just where they end the movie or how they choose to end the movie, I think really shapes maybe how you interpret what story they're trying to tell a little bit. Mm-hmm. So I want to come back to that. But I think the movie is definitely uh, is definitely makes some changes there. Um, I will say though, the film seems deeply indebted to the Charles Portis dialogue. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. So so much of the the really good dialogue in this 
is like, oh, that's just lifted out of Portis. So, and I think the scenes that aren't in the, that aren't right from the book, I think the screenwriter did a great job of like making it sound like what Portis was writing. So I thought that was really great. Although I do think that at times where dialogue that sounds good on the page, when you read it to yourself, uh, is awkward coming out of some of the actors, um, some of the actors are, it, it, I feel like it's, it's kind of hit and miss, I think with some of the performances in this. Well, you and I had a recent conversation about that in a different context, um, Sam, when we, uh, when we watched Double Indemnity together uh, and we talked about the difference between the dialogue and the James Kane novel and realizing when you actually spoke it, it didn't, it didn't really work. And I did, I did read that, that Wayne struggled a bit with the dialogue and, um, and he struggled a bit with knowing how to work with Kim Darby because, you know, she's got, I think she has kind of the most distinctive voice in the film, literally, and in terms of the, the kind of the words that she's given to speak. Um, and she seems to carry that off quite well. And it's, as you said, it's a bit of a, bit of a struggle for some of the other actors. And it took Wayne a while to kind of really figure out how to get into that rhythm. Uh, do we want to talk? Let's talk about some of the other other actors in here, because there's a few people that I I didn't look at the cast list, and I I kind of ignored the stuff at the top. And there were there were at least two faces that popped up that excited me to see. Um, one of them I think is better in this movie than the other. Yes. Um, so, uh, uh, but before we get to those, um, you've talked a little bit about really liking um, Kim Darby in this. You want to talk a little bit about her performance as Maddie, and, and maybe that character. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, you know, first of all, she's a, she's a, she's a pretty convincing 14-year-old. You know, she's 21 at the time they make the film. She's a pretty convincing 14-year-old. But I just, I, I, I love the way that she was um, consistently um, in control. I mean, I, 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 I guess, you know, we've talked a lot about, you know, um, gender roles in films. We talked about that the last couple of weeks with Little Shop and You've Got Mail. And so I, I thought it was really interesting that she actually has a kind of power in this film, a kind of self-possession that I actually believed in because I thought, you know, she's a child of the frontier. Life is not easy. And, and, and they set that up very, very early on right, where she's clearly in charge of the family finances. She's her father's advisor, and she's one of these people. And I know, you know, I think we've both known um, precocious youth like this, like they just seem wise beyond their years. And so I think she does a wonderful job of, of inhabiting that, uh, that, that, that persona. And part of what, you, what part of it is what you said earlier, too, that she kind of has the a very strong belief in right and wrong behind uh, behind her, and she's got lawyer Daggett, and she's got a real sense that this is this is the right thing that needs to be done, and that really kind of kind of drives her. Well, I think because because she's uh, she's a girl, right? That it's like it's like somebody, and I'm assuming it's her father because she has this close relationship with her father. Was just like in this world, you need to be undeniable, and you mm -hmm. just need to be like like you like you don't take. Um, you know, you don't take no for an answer. You just keep going to sort of until you get your, I mean, the, the stuff where she's horse trading is, is great. It's especially when she comes back and wants to buy the ponies and he's like, well, you were going to sell them for $10. So that is now the market price. And, and like just the frustration on the, the, the guy, the, the, the guy's face is just like, Oh, I, what is it going to take to get so when he has the line about i heard there was an, an accident and a girl fell down a well and i was hoping it was you it's a really that that's from the novel but that's a great that's a, a great like 
picture of exactly what that guy was. And he doesn't have any qualms about saying it to this young girl because he knows who she is at this point. Um, so, so I, I, I really, really like, um, I really like that character. And I think that's a key to this, to this movie is to have, um, is to have a, a convincing Maddie. Yeah. Um, uh, you said you were brought to this movie by Glenn Campbell. Thoughts on Glenn in this movie? Okay. You know, the funny thing is, um, he was better than I remembered him. Oh, okay. Really? I mean, he's not really good. Um, And to be fair to him, he doesn't get a lot of great lines either. Although I I, I do think some of the boarding house banter between him and Maddie is is pretty good. Um, But I think he's largely a pretty face. Um, And, Okay, I, true confession. I I totally forgot that he dies at the end. I did not. I actually <laughs> did not remember that. But one thing I should say is, as you probably know, the role was originally intended for Elvis Presley. Um, so obviously, the role was all all. It was always intended to be kind of a a singer song, a singer who could also had some acting. And of course, Presley had a lot of acting experience by this point. It was just at the point where Presley had just done his great career comeback in 1968. But his agents wanted, if you can imagine this, his agents wanted top billing. They wanted Presley billed over John Wayne, so that wasn't going to happen. So Glenn Campbell had started to do a little acting about this time. And so, um, uh, yeah, so he, so he, but, but yeah, he, he, he's okay. He's yeah. okay. Um, but I his, think, I, I think we'll see that Matt Damon does a much better yes. job. He, he, he's, he's good in that he is handsome in this movie, which yeah. is like the LaBeef character is that, and, yeah. and you need that. I, although he is, um, I feel like one of the, uh, sins of, of movies like this. Um, I remember listening to a comedian talk about this with the movie or not the movie with the TV show mash, which comes out, you know, six, seven years later, which is like. This, like like I like I look at his hair and I'm like, that looks like what just what Glenn Campbell's hair probably looked like. Like it's like <laughs> I don't think like 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 we're playing something in the 1880s and he looks a little too like well coiffed and things mm. like that. Um, but when you brought up the boarding house, it made me think of one other thing about Maddie that that I I really like and you get a little bit of this in the movie and a little and and you get a little bit more in the book, which is at the same time that she is, um relentless and undeniable there's also moments where she's just sort of accepts certain things um because of like propriety and realizing this isn't a place worth putting your stake in the ground so like um in the book they make a bigger deal about how she has to sleep with the old lady at the boarding house even though she paid full you know a full full room and board um and there is this in the book it gets because because it's more in her head she sort of thinks through the like is this one worth fighting about or not Mm -hmm. and um and i so i really i really like that about her um so the, the the other two big actors that show up in this uh, is uh, are Dennis Hopper and Robert Duvall. Um, now, one of the things that I, so Duvall plays Lucky Ned Pepper um, and really isn't given much to do in this movie. I, I feel like um, first, I, actually, I if I could recast this, I would make him Cheney because in yeah. my head Cheney was a lot younger. I was a little it was a little strange to see how old Cheney looked, and it's like actually Duvall would have been great at Cheney, and I he would have had just a little bit more work to do for somebody with his talent like because he can he can uh portray a kind of menace that that i think i want out of change yeah, so yeah. um because i feel like oh it was cool to see r- young robert duvall but i like other than seeing him 
there's not much he gets to do in this movie. The other person though is Dennis Hopper, um, who has a tiny part, and I didn't even recognize him at first. He's maybe my favorite part in the movie. I think he's great in this, um, and it's a, and he's a uh, I a little bit of Dennis Hopper goes a long way. Yeah. Um, and so this is he. It's it's set up for get him to get to do the things he's good at. Um, but it's also restrained enough because the character dies pretty quickly. I, re- I actually think he's great in a tiny little part in this movie. So, yeah, I, I guess, you know, it wouldn't be an episode of Video Store without at least one appearance by Robert Duvall. I right. Uh, I think it's our fifth uh, film with Duvall in it. Um, and, of course, this, this, is, this, is, this is one of the – here's a trivia question for you. What does True Grid have in common with Apocalypse Now? Uh, and that would be that both films have Dennis Hopper and Robert Duvall. Um, what I find interesting about Hopper's appearance is he has a history with Henry Hathaway. Um, so Hopper made his film debut in, uh, in 1956 in Rebel Without a Cause with, uh, James Dean. And he was with James Dean in Giant as well. And, uh, and that, uh, Dean's last film. And that kind of gave Hopper a bit of a, um, a bit of a chip on his shoulder. So he was directed by Hathaway in, uh, 1958, a film called From Hell to Texas. And evidently, Hopper made that shoot um, hell for Hathaway. There's there's one scene where they had to do 80 takes because Hopper was trying to assert his artistic integrity or whatever. And Hathaway told him after the shoot, uh, you'll never work in Hollywood again. Um, obviously, they patched it up. The other thing I have to say, because this is so typical of Duvall, the only actor that Hathaway had trouble on the set with was Duvall. Uh, and as we've talked about in the past, Duvall is famously difficult on set. Uh, and evidently it was, he was true to form on this film as well. Um, so when I think about this movie visually, uh, this is where, again, I don't even have enough, I don't have enough, uh, knowledge or history of Westerns and filmmaking. This movie, I don't like the way this movie looks particularly, Mm -hmm. um, and, this is going to be uncharitable, but it, it looks to me like the way that I think of like a generic, 60s 70s it looks like an episode of little house on the prairie visually now there's a couple there's a couple shots where you get the wide shot with the mountains and it's like that's a cool vista we got there but but i i feel like it's i don't even know again i don't have the language to describe what it is about this but um it's the kind of thing visually that makes westerns feel off-putting to me is something about the way that it looks Mm mm-hmm um, so I don't, I don't know. Um, that's kind of all I have to say about it visually, but, um, I, I, I feel like there's also not a, not many moments where I was like, that is a really interesting framing or a really interesting shot. Yeah. It seems like workmanlike as a director, but, but this does, I don't feel like I'm in the hands of like a great director watching this movie. Yeah. That's a great description of Henry Hathaway. He, I mean, he, he directed a lot of he directed a lot of kind of decent films, uh, you know, to go back to, you know, a genre I really like. He he actually directed several pretty decent noirs uh, called Northside 777 with Jimmy Stewart. He did Niagara with Marilyn Monroe and Joseph Cotton. He did another film, which actually was written by Charles uh, Brackett, uh, Billy Wilder's co-writer. He did a film called Dark Corner, Kiss of Death. But you're right. He is, I would say, workmanlike, kind of a journeyman. Um, and one of the things I think to kind of maybe give a label to what you're talking about, um, Sam, I think in the best Westerns, um, the, the landscape becomes a character. And so it's probably the classic example of that is John Ford's use of Monument Valley. 
you know, Ford goes back to Monument Valley again and again, and, and somehow the landscape is not just a backdrop, but it explains, maybe if this makes sense, it kind of explains the characters. There's a sense in which the characters and the life kind of grows out of that, out of that landscape. It becomes a kind of a metaphor for maybe what's going on internally. Whereas I think what's happening in True Grit is this is a, this is a, um, a location that uh, Hathaway had shot on before with Wayne when they did North to Alaska. Uh, so I think part of it is, you know, this is a, the, the, you got these cool mountains and you get them once in a while, uh, but it doesn't really, I mean, it's, it's interesting that, that it doesn't really matter the way he shoots the film. It doesn't really matter where it happens. Uh, so I think what will be interesting when we talk next week is, as you know, the Cone brothers tried for a location that looks much more like the Arkansas, Oklahoma location of the novel. And so it'll be interesting if we revisit that topic next week about, well, what difference does the landscape actually make in the Cone brothers treatment? Well, and I'm excited to look for that because my memory of, I, I only saw True Grit in the, the Coens in the theater. So it's been 10 years. Um, and I remember the performances, but like, Visually, the movie, I, I don't remember very well. So I'm actually really excited to watch it, uh, especially thinking about the 69 version, watching watching the Coens version and thinking about some of the visual the visual storytelling. And that is one of the things that uh, that I want to look for. Um, just going through my, my notes here. Uh, you mentioned the, the the casting. What if of Elvis as Labeef? Um, the Maddie character also has a, a, a pretty big run of potential people. Um, I mean, there were, there were lots of names, but just to highlight a few that originally this was supposed to be Mia Farrow. Yeah. Um, but she didn't like Hathaway or she was, she was told by, was it Robert Mitchum? Who Robert Mitchum her? warned her off Hathaway. He, yeah. said he, he said Hathaway was quote cantankerous. Yes. Yeah. So she tried to get Roman Polanski to direct, yes. <laughs> um, but the, but, but Hal Wallace said, no, uh, Hathaway is going to make this movie. So, so she was off. John Wayne wanted Karen Carpenter yeah, to, yeah. to do this, uh, which is fascinating to think about. Also having Glenn Campbell and Karen Carpenter in a movie is kind of interesting. <laughs> Sally Field was in the yeah. running at some point. So um, it just, it was just interesting to see all of the different like potentials of this. I actually really like Kim Darby in this though. I think that, oh, yeah. that, that worked really well. Yeah. 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 Wayne also mooted his daughter, his 13 year old daughter, but uh, that didn't get very far. Yes. Oh. We, we um, should I, I should mention since you said Hal Wallace, Hal Wallace is a really good producer. Um, so our connection to Hal Wallace is he produced Casablanca. Um, and in this same year of 69, he also produced uh, End of a Thousand Days, which I wanted to mention because Richard Burton was nominated for Best Actor for End of a Thousand Days, as were... You talked about 69 being a watershed in American films, as were both John Voight and Dustin Hoffman, both as, as lead actors for Midnight Cowboy, which was the first general release to be X-rated. So if you think about that, if you think about Burton, Voight, Hoffman, and Wayne, and Wayne getting the Oscar that year, you can kind of see why a lot of people say, yeah, it was kind of an Oscar for, the, for his career. It really wasn't an Oscar for this particular performance. Um, I, the two last questions that I, that I want to, I, I want to make sure we talk about, um, and one of these maybe goes back to kind of the, a theme of the movie, uh, which is why is this story called true grit? Um, what is, what, what, I mean, Maddie, bring, I mean, I know why it's called it. Cause Maddie brings us up and this is the, this is the, uh, characteristic she's looking for. Right. And that, that that's, that's what she needs is somebody who has grit. Um, what does the, uh, 
what is the significance of grit in this story? <laughs> First of all, I have to say the only thing I remembered about this film, having watched it 52 years before, the only thing I remembered was Glenn Campbell singing the title song. <laughs> I Which mean, was it, also nominated for an Oscar. I mean, I mean, the minute that music started, I, I, I started I knew all the words. It was like it just came flooding back. Um, I, 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 th I think what, what I think is interesting about True Grit as a title is that Natty is looking for some, uh, someone with True Grit, but she is the one who has True Grit. Um, and I th and I and I think it's both the idea of grit, which is obviously that determination, but I also think it's the idea of being true. I think, I think the film is a lot about being true to your cause, being true to, um, be, being, being true to each other, uh, you know, being, tr being true to, in a sense, to the truth. So I, so I think the true part is, is, is as important as the, as, as the grit. And it kind of helps to redeem Mr. Cogburn because, you know, despite the shadiness of his character, he is somebody who uh, has, um, has that quality of once he undertakes to do something, he will see it through to the end. And you see that coming out, I think, obviously, in the scene where he saves her life. Um, it's like, you know, he, this, is, this, is, this is more than just a bounty hunt to him. This is actually a commitment to her. And 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 she definitely through her <laughs> grit and tenaciousness wins him over. Like oh, yeah. like you know, I, I actually really love the that we have the this this triangle of characters. And for the first part of the movie, there you're always getting two people opposed to the other, and it's often Labeef and and Rooster opposed to mm -hmm. Maddie coming. But then there is this moment where Rooster because of his place in that, the power dynamic of that triangle is like, actually I'm on her side right now. You know, when, <laughs> when he starts, uh, when Labeef starts, starts whipping her. Right. And he's like, no, this is not what, this is not what we're going to be. Doing. And then like, and that becomes this, this moment. And part of it is like, she has shown herself this whole way. Um, you know, even that they're even trying to like ditch her in Indian territory. And, and she's like, I am still here. I mean, it kind of reminds me of Butch and Sundance when they ride off and they keep looking back and they keep being followed. Like Maddie is just like, <laughs> not going to, not going to go away. Um, okay. So the last thing I want to talk about is the ending of this movie. Cause this is probably, again, the biggest departure kind of from the Portis book. The, the Portis okay. book has a coda, which is many years later, mm. um, where this ends, uh, this has a very, a very different ending where, um, rooster comes back to visit, to visit Maddie, you know, and she shows him the burial plot for her father and kind of walks through, you know, here's where my brother's family is going to be buried and here's where I'm going to be buried. And then she says, you know, and I would like, I want to bury you here next to me. Right. Yeah. And so, so we have that. Um, and then we have, uh, rooster riding off and jumping the fence. Um, what are your thoughts on the ending of this movie? Because it's it's I will say it's the part that I like the least because I think I like and I'll talk about the ending of the book. I like the book ending so much better. Okay, well, I think there's two things I actually think are important and I kind of like about the ending. One one of the things I like about the ending is that um, one of the plot one one of the plot arcs in this film uh, is. This may sound a strange way to put it, but it's almost like Rooster's courtship of Maddie. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and, and so in, in a sense, they, I mean, obviously they're not going to be together in, in, in any kind of formal sense, but I think that brings a, a, a wonderful closure to their, to their relationship. Uh, and, and she becomes a surrogate family. And I think that, I find that very satisfying, actually, because I think it actually makes sense the way you know, she really does. You surely does become little sister, 
uh, to him. The other thing about that ending, which is completely, um, well, it kind of gets back to our original conversation about this is a film which is int intended to um, depict John Wayne as John Wayne, because he actually makes that leap himself. Mm -hmm. uh, most of the other action in the film has been done by one of his stunt doubles. And that was one where, you know, he, he wanted to see if he could actually do it. And Wayne at this point was a cancer survivor. Uh, he had lost a lung and he only had part of another lung. And so I think his performance in that respect is almost heroic that he pulls off as much as he does. But he really wanted to see if he could jump over that fence, and he really did. So I think that's a kind of a, that's a kind of a extra textual element to the ending. Sure, yeah. The, the only thing that I, that I don't like about... Because actually the story, the, the, the Portis story ends in a... Has, has those same themes, but they play it out a little differently. I feel like this ends a little bit too much with like the, uh, the, the button at the end of the movie is the old guy still got it. Yeah, and it's yeah, like, yeah. well, that's not what the story's really about <laughs> to me. Um, so, so in the book, we get, we, we fast forward into the, into the early 20th century mm. and um, Maddie is unmarried and, and so, so she does, so she's talking about talking to her brothers and how they tease her about her love for rooster and this love affair that they had, you know? Yeah. So, so, so they do have this. And then she finds out that he is traveling in a wild West show with uh, Frank James and Cole younger part yeah. of the, so that's part of the Quantrill like sub sub story. So she goes to visit him. Mm. And by the time she gets there, he's died. And oh. she talks with, with Cole younger and Frank James about rooster. And she convinces them to give, her rooster's body so she can come so she can bury him at the homestead so it is like they pick up those same themes but you also get more of this like the closing of the west and these figures becoming legends and and sort of the the outlaw and the lawman kind of melting together you kind of you get that piece of the american story in it and i like that so much more mm -hmm. than than the because it, it's it's definitely a much like more somber ending than you know rooster jumping the fence but it still allows for rooster could have jumped the fence, but it's like, but this is, I, I like that cap, cap yeah. a little bit more. There's also a little more stakes. Maddie loses an arm in the, yes. uh, in the yeah. story. So I, I was very much looking at this to see in the last scene, like, did they go, did they even like visually do that? And they didn't. So the, no. the snake no. bite is, is uh, of less consequence yeah. in that way. So one other comment about rooster jumping the fence, Henry Hathaway told Wayne, uh, you listen to me and you'll win an Oscar for this film. So uh, I think that was putting the that was putting the exclamation point on the Oscar performance. Absolutely. Uh, do you have other things you want to talk about with this movie? I, I guess I wanted to say one more thing. Um, kind of go back to our opening uh, conversation about the genre of the of the western. Um, one, one writer has identified like seven basic plots to westerns, and I think it's interesting that this western actually has three of those plots. So one of them is the revenge story. Uh, another one is, so, you know, you have a chase and pursuit. Um, the other one is the outlaw story where you have an outlaw gang that dominates the action. And the other is the martial story, the lawman and his challenges. So I can think of, of individual films that exemplify, you know, each of those, like the martial story is high noon, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, and the outlaw story is the wild bunch that we talked about earlier, but I think it's interesting this film, as I assume does the novel, it kind of combines all of those elements. Uh, together, plus the one we just talked about, which is the love story, uh, which is often in there as well. And I will say, I remember when the Cohen movie came out, there was a lot of talk about um, 
there was a lot of talk about like, oh, the Coens really want to be true to the novel. And I got to say, I think the 1969 movie, with some exceptions, is pretty true to the novel, pretty true to the language of the novel. I was amazed how many plot points and scenes from the that, that are important to the novel make it in here. Now, I will say the downside of that is it feels a little bit like they're really in a hurry to get stuff into this movie, mm-hmm. um, which is funny because this is a two hour movie. Yeah. It's a long movie. It's actually longer than the Coen's movie, mm-hmm. but, but my, my memory of the Coen's movie, and we'll see this next week, if this is true, is that it actually feels slower than um, yes. th- this felt like, man, we are clipping, clipping, clipping yeah. through. So uh, like, like slower and meditative where this, I feel like somehow isn't that, but it's longer. And I think part of it is they're trying to get all these little pieces, like this scene from the book, we got to put that in, we got to put that in. And, and um, I, I, yeah, I wonder if like if there if there would have been ways to more elegantly do some of that so it didn't feel because even like I would say the scene uh, when she's in the rattlesnake pit mm-hmm. in the book has so much tension in it mm-hmm. and I feel like this movie I didn't feel that tension as much mm-hmm. I feel like because there because I feel like even that clipped along so I'm curious to see how the Cohen scene feels to me of that, because that's a great scene in the book. And it's there, there's a, it's, it, he actually takes a lot of time in there. Um, and, and I feel like the movie just didn't do that uh, as much. And again, it's already two hours. So I didn't want an extra 15 minutes yeah. in there, but I wanted to feel that tension a little more. Yeah. That is one of the scenes from the Cohen brothers film is still in my head. So you ask me what scenes do I remember? That's one I definitely remember. So, all right. Uh, so I think I know the answer to this, but what do you have for us for next week? Oh, I changed my mind, Sam. I think we should watch High Noon. Uh, no, we're gonna we're gonna watch the 2010 Coen Brothers adaptation of True Grit. Well, I am so excited to watch that, Barrett. Thank you so much for um, for recommending this movie. This is a movie that I um, had kind of always meant to see after seeing the Cohen movie to kind of go back to it, but I was always sort of resistant of. Um, I think just because of mm. the John Wayne of it all. And like, mm. actually, I, I thought Wayne is good in this movie. I, 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 um, it, it makes me feel like um, I should be a little bit more open to him and, and, you know, and, and seek out at least, uh, at least some of his films that are, because uh, he is in, in some movies that are regarded as great and important. I know the, yes. the Searchers is a, complicated movie in that way but like but that's that's i feel like that's a hole in my resume not having seen that so that's something that i will um i will seek out and watch so thank you so much for recommending this and we will be back next week to talk about the coen brothers version of true grit in the video store (laughs) 